With that said, we're going to dig right in this morning. Again, we're going to be in 1 Peter. Going back a little bit, and we'll talk a little bit about that. We jumped ahead and we're moving back this week into 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through chapter 3, verse 7. Last week, we shared a message called Suffering's Silver Lining. This week, we're going to talk about Suffering's Code of Conduct. And so before we get into this message, I want us all to imagine for a minute, I want us to go to a place where this message becomes immediately applicable every point along the way by asking just a few questions. And the first question is this, where in your life right now, your life today, do you personally find it the most difficult to model your life after Jesus? What place in your life do you find it most difficult to be Christ-like? What relationships are we in? What contexts are we in where we're just saying, Lord, it's really easy to be like you in some places, but then when I get around this person or this context, it just becomes increasingly more difficult. Let's think through that space. What does that look like for us? And what are the contexts then where it is most challenging to extend His love to the people or places in that context. What makes it difficult? What are the offenses that have been put up in different times and different places? What are the fears when we enter into certain contexts and situations? Where are the places of unforgiveness that make it really hard to be who Jesus has called us to be? As we think about those things specifically for our own lives, everybody got something? I hope you do. I got a few things, a few places, a few people. With that said, I want us to enter in to 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives amongst the pagans that they accuse you of doing wrong they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. This is the exhortation from Peter. And in his initial address, back at the beginning of chapter 1, verse 1, he refers to his friends as foreigners. Then in his address of these growing disciples of Jesus, in verse 117, he refers to them as exiles. And then here in 2 verses 11, he refers to them as both foreigners and exiles. So he calls them foreigners once, then he calls them exiles later, and then he comes back again in the same letter and calls them foreigners and exiles in the same breath. What do you think he wants his readers to know? What's the thing he wants them to understand as a foundation, as a base for suffering on behalf of the God who suffered for us first. This is the context. This is the argument that Peter is building. What does he want us to know? He wants us to know that we are followers of Jesus living in a world that isn't following Jesus. Really simple. He wants us to know who we are and the place that we are, and he wants to reassure us that it's okay that we don't match the culture that's presented to us in the neighborhood where we're living. He's saying, take a deep breath. That's okay. I designed it on purpose. Remember where I set you. I set you in the dark. I set you in a dark place to be a light that shines. That's where I set you. It looks like this. God set us here in the dark. Start looking at this picture. What, 
If you imagine being that light, you are that light in this moment, what makes you uncomfortable? Think about that for a moment. This morning I stood and I looked at this picture and I thought, well, Lord, what makes me uncomfortable about this picture? One, it's drawing attention to me. That's uncomfortable sometimes when everybody's attention is on us, especially when the message that we have to share is contrary to the message that the culture is is delivering, right? Being a light draws attention to us. The other thing that made me quite uncomfortable about this picture is that as the light, I can't see the darkness around me. What's out there? What's lurking? What could get me if I shine in the dark? This is entirely uncomfortable. Some people like it, right? Some raging extroverts or people that really love to be the center of attention might love this. But most of us go, oh, especially when we're shining and the message that we're sharing isn't something that the culture wants to hear. Amen? But Jesus says, remember, I set you there. I set you there to shine in dark places. So don't be offended by what you witness. Don't be offended by what you see around you because you're a guest here. A friend of mine named David, who spent some time down at the Walter Hall Park, at the skate park, he's invited, uh, we, we're, we're setting up a day to go down there and flip burgers and, and cook burgers for kids down at the park. We've been rained out a few times. Uh, sometimes it didn't work. The kids weren't down there. But we want to set up a time to go down and just bless the kids at the park by cooking some burgers. And David said to me, he goes, now, now Pastor, when you get down there, you're going to hear some language that you may not be used to. I said, David, been around the block a few times, but thank you very much. But what he's saying is when you come around, my friends, please don't be offended. Don't do something in the name of Jesus that makes people feel like they're less than worthy of the love that he died for them to share, right? Don't be offended. Don't be surprised. Whatever you hear, whatever you see, remember that those in the dark haven't signed up for the light that you've signed up for. So we just sit. We're just together in these places. It reminds me of what the author Jerry Cook talks about when he talks about the church as being a force or a field. The church is a field is the brick and mortar church that exists on a corner. Right now, if we decided that this was the church, it would be at 222 West Casino, Everett, 98208. That's what, if that were the church. If the church were brick and mortar, we would say that the church is horizon. But we know that's not the case. We know, especially with as mobile as we are, that the church is the people. The church is a force. It's a force to be reckoned with. That the church is gathered and the church is scattered. But we are the church. But why is it so hard to remember that? I was thinking about why is it so hard to keep the church acting like a force as opposed to a field? It's difficult for me, too, because the church as a field, a place where you can go and participate in the leave and don't be don't have to be associated with it necessarily. Looks a lot like a bright room with a lamp that's not on. It doesn't draw attention to itself. It doesn't have to do much. It can just be comfortable in the space where it is around common and familiar things. But the church is a force. looks like this. It looks like this bright light shining in the dark. And it's uncomfortable to be there. I, I find myself here a lot, and I find that I have to keep asking the Lord for strength to get to that place, to go out and shine in these spaces, because it's uncomfortable. I have to be associated with the church all the time. I have to stay in relationship all the time. But it's a reminder 
to live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. For that, we'll do that. For that, we will live such good lives amongst those who disagree with us that they might come into relationship with Jesus. They're foreigners, they're exiles, and so it begs the question, who are these foreigners and exiles? Where, where do they come from? Even And why did they leave the place that they were? These are questions that, that roll around in my mind when I'm thinking about what God has called me to do as a foreigner in exile. Where did I come from? What is he doing in me and through me? And we find that most scholars seem to think that Peter's letter was written to a group of misplaced people. I want to give you a quick crash course in what it meant to be a Roman exile, right? Where were these people coming from? What were they doing? And what were they hoping to achieve? But these were displaced people from Rome in the immediate area following around it. Zach, can you put this map up? What we understand is that most people that Peter was writing his letter to started down here in Rome. And because of persecution, because of... Uh, people accusing them of things because of their faith. Most of these people moved from here and they moved as exiles and foreigners to this land that's called Asia Minor. This is where all the churches happened to be meeting at the time. So everything started down here, right, in about 30 AD, 33 AD when Jesus died on the cross. The word spread. Ex- uh, Gentiles came to Jesus because the word was spreading. And then because of their new faith found in Christ, they moved back into this area. People that were just looking to settle down and not be harassed. People that were just looking for a place to live their lives. It's common. When we come up against opposition, we want to go back to common places. When we face opposition, we want to become the church as a field. But the Lord says, no, you're a force empowered by the Holy Spirit. So stay out there on the pointed edge of the spear. And shine bright for me. But these displaced people were dealing with a heightened sense of persecution. They tried to get as far away from the midst of that persecution as possible. And they were people, by the way, who didn't likely possess a Roman passport. That's not something that they had, which would make you more uncomfortable and would put you at a greater disadvantage. Imagine being in a country where you didn't have authorization to be. Imagine all the things that we wake up and have every day because we're allowed to be where we are. So many of the neighbors that we're living amongst don't, don't have permission to be where they are, or there's people that, that Christian just could take, can, welcome home, by the way, Chris has been gone in Bangladesh for three weeks, he's back. Uh, Chris sat in a, a refugee camp this week and did 209 interviews with displaced people who had had to leave their country because of religious persecution, and he got to sit with and be with a displaced people group. Absolutely fantastic, but we remember that when we don't have these privileges that we're so accustomed to, it makes life more difficult. So the qualifications for Roman citizenship, because most of these people that left Rome didn't necessarily have it, one was that you had to be a freeborn native of the city of Rome. Freely born, just like the United States, freely born, you become a citizen. Or if you had purchasing power, which was something that a few people had and most people didn't, you could buy your citizenship. But that was expensive and reserved for a few people. 
Most of these people didn't have that kind of privilege, that kind of power. And what did these displaced foreign exiles that Peter is talking to and saying, stay on the edge of the spear of your faith, what is it that they didn't have that the Roman citizens did have? Well, one, they didn't have legal rights. That would be important. They, they couldn't vote. They, they, those who weren't Roman citizens couldn't own or inherit property. They couldn't freely travel. Traveling was dangerous. They could be scourged, beaten, whipped without trial. And they didn't have any access to appeal to the emperor if something happened that they were accused of. So it was good to have citizenship because you could vote, you could have property, you could travel freely, and you did have legal rights. These were important things, but most of these people didn't have them. And Peter was addressing them because he says, here you are, the unqualified, marginalized people, and I will work with you, I will work through you to bring the hope of the gospel to those who don't have it. This is the context. These undocumented people came primed with a message that was going to change the world. I think about these things as our cultural context changes, as our landscape in the United States changes, as we become more of a post-Christian country than we ever have been before. There are things I don't like to think about, but I start to think about, Jesus, how would you use my life if I didn't have all these things that I take for granted every day, like the right to be here and the right to vote and the right to own property or to meet as a church without paying taxes above the earth as opposed to below it? All these things that I have, that we have, that more and more of the world prays for us because they know how deep their faith has become because they've had to survive without those things. They have to rely on Jesus. This is just something, I don't know if it's 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, but we as the body of Christ filled with the Spirit have to be in tune with what's happening in our culture and prepare for what might come. But God is faithful. He proves himself to be faithful to all kinds of people. But Peter was concerned with these folks. He was concerned for them how the message of hope would be received. How would it be interpreted by the dark, by those in darkness? And he wanted to train up his people. He wanted them to understand how to share the hope of the gospel. This is everything that we're seeing, again, just in these first two verses. I will read it again in light of that context. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits See, Peter's giving his audience a quick list of to-dos and to-don'ts as they sought to engage family members specifically. We'll see how this relates to the family who had not yet come to Christ. In light of the suffering that Jesus has faithfully endured on our behalf, we become responsible today to be people who have been called out of darkness. That's our calling, just as much as it was to the earliest Christians. It's our calling to know how to live life shining bright, called out of the darkness, but yet to return to it, not as darkness, but as light. That's what we've been called to do. So he's saying, here's something I want you not to do anymore. I want you to stop sinning intentionally, as if you would enjoy it. It doesn't mean that we're all going to quit sinning and never have an imperfect day again. That's the other side of heaven. But he says, quit enjoying your sinful behaviors, essentially what he's saying. Quit trying to derive life from dead things. 
pursue the God who has called you into light. And when you come up short, and you will, say you're sorry, make a plan to not continue in that pattern, and, and get back on it. Let it go. Be a redeemed people. Don't wallow in your sin any longer. So he says, don't do that anymore. This, by the way, this stuff wages a war against your soul. You don't know it. It feels good in the moment. But inside, it's killing you. So stop it. He just says, just stop. Secondly, live good lives, such good lives amongst the pagans, which could be translated nations. Interesting when you think about living good lives amongst the pagans versus the nations. Because when I think of the nations, I think of God's holy people, right? When I think of pagans, I'm like, ew, right? Those are people that we... Those are people that David that wants to go down to the park and hang out with kids skateboarding says, please don't do anything that misrepresents Jesus to these kids by going, ew, when they cuss, or ew, when they smoke a blunt, or whatever it happens to be do, or you get a chance to look at their, their criminal record or their juvenile record. Just love them. Come right on up and sit on down. And let God take care of the rest, but just be present. He's saying, live these lives amongst the nations, as in God declares his love to the nations. Peter's words echo Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.16 where he says, Jesus says in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify, there's that same word again, glorify their Father in heaven. Peter citing Jesus. Amazing. Glorify in the Greek doxazo. Look at all the things that doxazo means. It means to praise, to magnify, to celebrate, to honor, to clothe with splendor, to render as excellent or underscore its value. Have all these things be true about the God who created us. So Peter shines his light on the target resolve for us today. The thing that we want to be doing is the same thing that the earliest believers did. And it's some we will statements. We will Live good lives at South Everett Foursquare Church, faithfully following after Jesus in a world that doesn't follow Jesus. We will live good lives. We will live with confidence knowing that through our lives and through the faith that God gives us, we might inspire faithfulness in the lives of other people. Think about your social mosaics, your communities that don't gather around things of faith but gather around soccer or Little League baseball or knitting or book clubs or whatever it is that you happen to enjoy doing that doesn't revolve immediately around Jesus. Those are the communities where we shine our light the brightest. Those are the people that say, what are you doing up there again? What, what did, where did God Bangladesh? Where is that? What were you doing? Wow. We have these incredible opportunities. Oh, you, you look after foster kids on Casino Road? You help other kids with homework? You just have the best attitude as facilities managers at Evergreen Middle? Like, you just, really? Like, you just you have the best attitudes out of everybody? Why are you so happy? You don't have 10 million bucks. You haven't achieved the dream yet. Well, I'm living for a different dream, see? Whatever it is that we do, wherever it is that we do it, we shine His light, we magnify Him. Amen. Amen. But there's suffering involved. That's the other part. Sometimes it's really hard. Last week we talked about the silver lining of suffering 
simply being that if we suffer for the sake of the gospel, the most powerful kind of hope springs to life. It's an eternal one. When we suffer for the gospel, people look at that and say, holy smoke, that's some conviction. And people are inspired to do hard things with us because they saw us do it. Every time I finish watching Rudy, everybody, it's football season, we've got to watch Rudy, right? When it's over and he gets on the field for that one play, everyone's, Rudy, Rudy. You guys know what I'm talking about? You're like, come on, right? Because you've been inspired by his trial. For 96 minutes, you've just been inspired by his trial and then you're ready to go take on the world. Like, people are inspired by your trial right now. Do you know that? Some of you are living through things that people go, holy moly, where did they get the power to do that? There's a suffering, there's a silver lining to the suffering we go through. It's important to remember. So that was last week. The, the good news is that it grows us. The other thing is how do we live in the midst of it? And that's what we're going to talk about for just a few minutes. Peter's call to the exiles and to the foreigners was a tough pill to swallow. It was a difficult pill at best. Because what Peter was calling believers to do was to honor and submit themselves to governing authorities in spaces where they found themselves as exiles, amongst those who had much more privilege, much more legal rights than they did, and oftentimes felt as if they were suffering under the weight of somebody else's privilege. And Peter's saying, why don't you just go ahead and honor and submit to all that? That's a tough pill to swallow. If I'm in that situation where, where I don't have what somebody else has and then God says just submit to it, I don't know about that. It makes me go back to the Gospels again and see, Jesus, what are you talking about? But in this portion of Peter's letter, he has specific codes of conduct for three different groups of people. For slaves, for wives, and for husbands. All three of these roles were fulfilled in first century Roman Empire culture. They were fulfilled within the context of family. We understand the wives and husbands part, but slaves as well. Because slaves in the Roman world, following the death and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, were a part of the family. But oftentimes, as a part of that family, they were asked to participate in the worship practices of that family, which weren't necessarily faith-based or Christ-based. They were worshiping whatever God the Roman Empire was worshiping. But as slaves came to Jesus, as spouses came to Jesus, how were they going to interact within the context of the family that they were in? Peter is saying in the scripture we're going to look at here, he's saying, look, there's a right and wrong way to introduce Christ to culture. Let's be tactical, let's be strategic, and let's be intentional about all of this. And so he says in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. It's a very, very hierarchical system based on behavior. It's a difficult place to live. So it is for as God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. He's basically saying, now you have this unlimited, unmerited grace of Jesus Christ. Don't abuse it by saying, well, I'm going to go party tonight and ask God for forgiveness tomorrow. Don't abuse your freedom. 
Hebrews talks about this. It says, don't trample the grace of God underfoot. Yes, it's available, but really it's designed to change your heart, not give you a free passage to do whatever you feel like. But there's some people living faith that way, and God calls us to come up next to them, love them right where they're at, and help them to see. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Well, the emperor at the time was was a brute. His name was Nero. He's the one that had ultimately had Peter executed for his faith upside down on a cross, as far as we understand it. Nero was a brute. And the Lord had modeled to Peter. And then Peter shared with exiles and foreigners what you do when you're brutalized. You submit. When that brutalization comes within the context of your faith. There's lots of reasons why people get beat up or mistreated or abused that don't fall under this. We talked about it last week. It's not just put up with every kind of abuse that comes your way for the sake of Christ. No. But when that abuse comes because we are following Jesus, then he's going to get the glory for it. But it's difficult to extend the love of Christ here, right? To a, a, to a brutal dictator, oppressor that's ultimately going to have you crucified, right? That's a tough place to say, I want to extend the love of Christ here. Again, back to our original question. Where's the difficult, most difficult place for us to extend the love of Jesus right now? What's the most persecuted, oppressed broken relationship that we're in that jesus is saying love into this or like no way man i ain't loving in that i'm getting mistreated right now (sighs) back to the gospels again in verses 12 and 15 and 16 and 17 in all of these verses in chapter 2 of first peter peter is making references to god god as theos in the greek or god as father all these references come God is talking about being a a father. They're highlighted up here. This is Father God. But it's interesting what happens in verse 13 because Peter all of a sudden refers to God as kudios in the Greek. What's the distinction here? Well, Jesus himself has unique kudios attributes as part of the Godhead. Kudios is this word submission. There's one God, three persons, and each person in the Godhead has unique attributes. And if you were to say, what was an attribute that Jesus brought out of the Godhead was submission. He submitted. First, Philippians said that he just took off his crown, he put it down, he got off his throne, he came down here and got in the mud with us. That's what he did. He submitted. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped onto. But he made himself nothing. The God of the universe, kudios, submitted his life Jesus is our prime example of what it looked like to submit to earthly parents, to submit to his heavenly father, and then brutally submit himself to ruling, governing authority. To submit, this word is related to obedience, but it goes a little bit further than obedience. To submit is to give the nod to someone who's in charge, right? And sometimes we can do that. We'll play by the rules, but we'll, we'll talk about people behind their back or we'll, we'll curse them in our hearts. And we'll have a leader, a boss, uh, either now or a previous time where you're like, yeah, I'll do what you say, but I'm going to grumble about it and I'm going to kill you in my heart too. Right? That's obedience. You did what you were asked to do. But submission is to be obedient with honor. 
What's the honor part got to do with it? We honor everybody because every person was made in the image of God. Every person. So when we extend honor to people that don't deserve it, don't think you've ever preached the gospel louder in your life than in that moment. When you honor someone who doesn't deserve it, simply because they were made in the image of God and they don't recognize it yet. That's missions. Helping people see the fingerprint of God on their lives before they see it, even when they're a jerk. Submission. He's asking us to submit. He's asking us to do good. Followers of Jesus will submit in every instance up until the point where that submission causes us to, to somehow compromise our relationship with Jesus. Does that make sense? We are to submit, but not to the point where we bow to some big golden cow, right? Nebuchadnezzar asked Daniel to bow. Now, Daniel did a really good job of submitting in every other area, except for that one. He just said, no, thank you. Nah, I don't think I'm, thank you, though. I appreciate the offer, but I'm gonna, I am bound to that. Okay, in the fire you go, and with the line you go. And God saved him through it, and then he still submitted in other areas, getting to a place of leadership through his submission. Funny, Jesus did that, too. Got to a place of leadership through his submission. Through his submission, through his honoring, through his obedience, came all the spoils that are kept in heaven for us, as Peter also talked about. So we can submit in difficult situations in our lives. We can honor in difficult situations in our lives. Where is it the hardest place right now to love and look like Jesus? In our context right now, I know exactly which one it is for me. And this morning, oh my God, help me again. I'm not going to hit a thousand. I'm not batting a thousand, but help me again to keep honoring the best I can in a specific relationship. Daniel did it. Peter did it himself when he refused to stay quiet about the healing power of Jesus before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. They were on their way to church. There was a guy who was broken and crippled on the side of the road. He asked for some money. They extended the healing power of Jesus instead, and he just popped right up. And everybody's looking at this, like this guy that was sitting on the side of the road is now healed. Everyone wanted an answer. The church leaders didn't like Peter's answer because it was taking their authority away from them. They said, shut up about it. We're going to throw you in jail so you shut up about it. He got out of jail and he just wouldn't stop talking about it because submitting in that instance was to deny the glory that God was due. It takes some strategery. It takes some intentionality. It takes some tactical focus to know how to live in that space. It's what we're called to do every single day in those very difficult relationships. In this Greco-Roman culture, this is why it was so important to Peter, in this Greco-Roman culture that these exiles and foreigners were living in, in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, everything revolved around the family. Family stood at the cornerstone of societal structure, in unfamiliar worldviews like the gospel of Jesus Christ, which concerned God's interactions with human affairs, that was a threat to the structure. That was a threat to the hierarchy. That was a threat to their understanding of who God was, that you could actually come to power by submitting. That's crazy. Crazy talk. That I can't do this in my own strength. That's crazy, but nope, you can't. You're a sinner saved by grace, and the way that we see the kingdom come is to submit to powers and authorities and then be raised up in God's power, not our own. This was the message that came that was a threat to the empire. We know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is disruptive. 
Peter knew it. He knew that the gospel was going to be disruptive when it came into these family units with the slaves, with the spouses. He knew it was going to be disruptive, and that's okay, but not unintentionally disruptive. The grace of Jesus Christ and the dividing power of the gospel does not give us license to be jerks to people. How will we bring this disruptive gospel into people's homes? We got someone doing it right now. He shared his story about six or eight months ago, but Momin, a senior at Mariner High School that came to Jesus out of a faith in Islam three plus years ago, was asked to leave his house by his mother because of his faith in Jesus. She said, go live with the Christians. Couch surf for a little bit, but never stopped being kind and loving and gentle and respectful to his parents. And slowly, little bit by little bit, they've let him back into the home. Not thrilled about it, but they, but I said, I said, Momo, what's the deal? He goes, well, I'm just being really kind. They're seeing that this faith that I have is making me brighter. I'm shining brighter. And yeah, it's divisive. It's gonna, I'm not worshiping Allah anymore. I'm not, Mom, I'm not doing those prayers. I'm not going to bow down, Mom, five times a day. This is happening in our neighborhood. I will not bow five times a day. I'm called to worship Jesus. But even in that faithfulness over time, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. We're believing for His parents to come to see Jesus. All this stuff is still very applicable today. It's what I love about it. It's disruptive, but Jesus... Peter shares with believers how to flourish in these existing family structures that are unfamiliar with the gospel. He specifically addresses these slaves, the wives, and finally the husbands. These were, these were critical roles within the context of family. And we read the last part of this passage here with all of that in mind. So in 1 Peter chapter 2. Where did we end? Verse 17, verse 18 through 3, 7. It says, this is Peter's address in light of all of this. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but to also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because of their consciousness of God. But how is it to your credit if... You receive a beating for doing wrong and enduring it. Like, that's not noble. This is what you got. It's what you deserved. But suffer for doing good, and you endure it. If you do that, that's commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. It says he committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. Again, Peter's returning to the Old Testament. Now themes of Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant emerge in Peter's gospel. Not his gospel, but in his letter, his epistle. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. To him he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseers of your souls. Wives, in the same way, submit to your husbands. So slaves and now wives, submit to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, 
such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry. Before you get mad, your heart rate goes up. We'll, we'll cover this, but or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self. I'm like, ladies, or I'm like hiding behind stuff here. We'll, we'll unpack this. Uh, for this is the way holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Again, we'll explain that. uh, And as heirs with you, the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So this is one of those passages of Scripture. This is one of those really, really difficult ones that should be said from the outset That out of context and apart from an understanding of the culture that Peter was addressing, this passage of scripture has been used over and over and over again to say that the Bible promotes both slavery and the oppression of women. Have you ever heard somebody say that? I'm not following that book. It calls for the oppression of slavery and of women. We just, how can you do that? And I'm like, I don't know how I can do that. I mean, that puts us in that weird spot. But there's a context that needs to be understood of what's actually being unpacked here in the place that it was written. That's our job as believers to dig into the Word to say, here's the full context. And we've got to grapple with these difficult passages of Scriptures. So the rights and dignity of minorities in the culture, especially people of color and of women, are to be tenaciously advocated for in every part of life. Dr. King said, it's not those who inflict the violence and the suffering of people that are of greatest blame. It's those who don't commit the acts but don't say anything about its injustice. We're not off the hook. We have some place to advocate for these things. And we have to be clear about that today, that the oppression of minorities and women and those who suffered under New World slavery in the 1600s or are suffering right now on this road in modern-day human trafficking, all of that remains abhorrent. It's awful. It's everything that the gospel came to obliterate. Right? But there's nothing revealed about the heart of the creator God in scripture that supports the degradation of his kids. So what's going on here? If God's heart doesn't support slavery and the oppression and submission of women, then what? What? What can we say? We must go back to the full context of the word. And I don't blame people for being upset about it if they don't know. But a brief investigation of this this morning in our last few minutes will help us to understand that the the book of Peter is showing us something entirely different. Scripture from start to finish, this is important to know, affirms the equal value of all people. Always. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. It doesn't mean that we're the same, but it means we're equal, right? There's differences there. There's beautiful, diversified differences there. It just means that we're equal. God loves us all the same. Peter and Paul in the New Testament speak to appropriate actions of believers in broken context. That's why this stuff comes up. The world was broken. They're trying to figure out how to, how to shove a square peg into a round hole here. Does that make sense? They're trying to say this is how we must act because of the place that we have been set, because of the context. We have to be strategic about these things. 
Well, none of these passages outright reject slavery because it comes up in 1 Corinthians 7, it comes up in Ephesians 6, it comes up in Colossians 3. There's no place in Scripture that says this shouldn't be happening. But there isn't a place, however, that endorses the practices of slavery either. Why didn't they speak up against it? Well, because it was a part of the culture, and it wasn't the same kind of slavery that we think about when we think about New World slavery. It's not the same kind of uh, slavery that we think about trafficking kind of slavery. In slavery back in the Roman Empire, there was no racial segregations concerning slavery. Education was encouraged amongst slaves. Slaves could own property. They could assemble publicly. Slaves' cultural and religious traditions were the same as Roman citizens until people came to Jesus. Right? Slaves could hold important occupations in society, such as farming, working in the medical fields, and finance. And the, the reality is that most Roman-born free people with documentation and citizenship didn't want to work jobs like that their whole life. These were just jobs. Slavery in this context was much more like employment than it was anything else. So we have to separate those two things out when we look at passages of Scripture like this. The slaves that Peter were addressing were more akin to employees than we could understand today. It says, submit even when those who are harsh. By harsh, we think about people who are, who are beating us. Right? But harshness just meant morally crooked. Anyone ever worked for someone who was morally crooked before? Take some prayer to figure out if we're supposed to stay there or not. Maybe we aren't, but maybe we are. Maybe we've been strategically put there so someone who's morally not crooked can speak life into that. Even when it's harsh, even when your employer, this is modern day terms, even got a boss at Boeing that's crooked and deceitful. Honor him because he bears the image of God. This is the kind of, this is the deeper understanding of this particular language. But even as slaves, even as people with the least authority in society, when Peter addressed them as morally free and acceptable to God, he brought dignity to the lowest levels of society. That's what was happening here. He started by speaking to the slaves first. When we speak to the kids first, it affirms their value as a part of this church. That's why the kids are always welcome to make noise and run around and do whatever it is that they do because we're affirming their value as part of us. So Peter was affirming value in that situation. In the beginning of chapter 3, he turns his conversation from an evangelical strategy about how slaves might reach their bosses to an evangelical strategy about how wives might reach their unbelieving husbands with the power of the gospel. That's what kind of submission comes about when it's the submission unto Christ. Because he submitted for our sake to bring us something great. So this isn't a passage, this isn't an attack on haircuts or lipstick or stitch fix or any of those things. Like it's fine to wear makeup. It's fine to get clothes and boxes sent to you by the internet. Anyone into stitch fix? All right, my family is into stitch fix. The shirt stitch fix came in a box, right? It's great. We can wear nice clothes. We can wear nice clothes. It's okay to have nice things. Right? It's just saying don't let your beauty be defined by the nice things you put on. Your beauty is affirmed by Jesus. That's what they're talking about. It's a call to remember the deeper beauty a husband sees in his bride when she's committed to him. That was the story in my family. 
me and my wife, Katrina, I, I was wayward. I was wandering. I didn't know which way was up or down. And I had barely started taking my relationship with Jesus seriously when I was 17. Within a year, I met her at the age of 18. And there was a beauty that existed within her that made me want to live differently. And then there was a beauty in her willingness to just walk with me for a number of years while I got all the garbage out. To say, I'm pursuing Jesus. If you want to take this as seriously as I do, then you can come. But that's up to you. I'm, I'm going. That, that was the beauty that my wife showed me for years before she was my wife. And then even up until this day, right? She shows me a depth and a beauty that makes me want to continue to pursue Jesus like nothing else. That's a gift. Wives, your gifts in that regard to your husbands. God honors women. There's the dean of studies. Her name is Joe Vitale at uh, Ravi Zacharias Institute of Ministry. And this is what she says. She says, from Genesis, the word says that both men and women were created in God's image. In Jewish tradition, the place at the foot of the rabbi was reserved for the rabbi's closest friends. The gospel records a number of women who sat at the feet of Jesus. Women were the first to the cradle, the last at the cross, and the first to witness the resurrected king. Beautiful. Beautiful. There's no place in God's kingdom to downplay the role of women or their place of equal influence in the unfolding hope of the gospel. This reference to weaker vessels has nothing to do with a woman's place in God's redemptive plan as is sometimes suggested by power-hungry people that aren't women, but it's a reference simply to physical strength and perceived status. Peter had to speak to the culture that he was in. He was saying, yes, you devalue these people, but I will value them greater than you will because by addressing, addressing women directly as people who are morally free and acceptable to God, what he was doing again was bringing dignity to the lowest levels in society. First the slaves and then the wives. He's speaking to these populations first to say, this is where God's looking. He's looking to you. He's looking at you. He's looking to partner with you. And then finally, Peter addresses husbands in just two very short verses because he didn't need to speak to their power. They already had the power, right? They had great power and influence within their homes, and many of them were accustomed to living as uh, however they wanted, without any opposition. But as these men came to Christ, remember these are foreigners and exiles, people that are coming from cross-cultural places to find Jesus. As these men came to Christ, Christ, Peter was calling them to live a different kind of life altogether. More than ever before, a husband was to be considerate and honoring of his wife, even if his buddies made fun of him for it in the bar. That's what he's saying. Your culture isn't going to do this, but you're in Christ now and you will do this. You will be honorate and considerate towards your wife. And by the way, if you don't, if I catch word that you aren't, you're going to have a really hard time getting your prayers heard in heaven. There's just that little part right there at the end of that passage of Scripture. I'll read it again. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Hmm. 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 
complicated passages of Scripture, but as we begin to unpack them, we see the power of submission. I will present the question again as we close today. Where is the most difficult place in your life to express Christ-likeness? You just get into that space and you're just you're like, man, this little devil in me. I'm just saying stuff I shouldn't say. I'm getting angry. I'm being short. I'm not paying respect. I'm not honoring. I'm not submitting. I'm not showing the love of Jesus to this person because they did that to me. But we find in the Godhead that in those moments he still submitted. This is a, this is a message all about intentional, strategic discipleship. How do we go into the darkest places in our world today? Imagine that place and let's pray as we close. Jesus, wherever that place is that you have called us into, help us submit. Lord, give us wisdom to know what is right submission and what is what is being mistreated and in, in, uh, in abuse of boundaries. Lord, we don't want to give up healthy boundaries, but Lord, where do we submit in honor? Lord, give us power by your Spirit to do that in places where we struggle to do so. God, in this moment, we do pray for those who are in bondage, modern day slavery in our in our neighborhood, in our in our city, in our state, in our nation, around the world. God, we lift up those who are in those spaces. Lord, we lift up the workers, those who are fighting uh, for freedom to bring hope and light. We pray that your Spirit would go before those situations, even now, that people would find freedom. Lord, we pray for uh, abusive marriages. God, we pray that there would be submission unto you first, Lord, from both husbands and wives. And Lord, we pray for freedom in those situations. God, we pray, God, even for, for men who are kind of kicking around the edges of this fellowship that, that just need a, a fresh dose of your love, that they would receive it. Lord, we would find place in the family. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you, church. Just so you know, we will be back here again next week. If the weather's nice, we might meet outside. Um, But thank you for coming, and have a wonderful day. We'll see you soon. You've been listening to a podcast from South Everett Foursquare Church. For more information about us, please visit us online at www.southeverett.org.